According to a report on global natural disasters from the Academy of Disaster Reduction and Emergency Management, 2021 had a 13% higher frequency of natural disasters compared to a 30-year period from 1990 to 2020. These natural disasters caused a total of $250 billion USD in damages worldwide in 2021, with $137 billion damages being storm-related. Last month, Hurricane Ian alone caused around $40 billion in damages in Florida. This begs the question, how are the costs of natural disasters calculated, how do insurance companies respond to them, and what is the role of the government in fixing damages? Uh, joining us to speak on the economics of natural disasters is Associate Professor Trent Smith from Te Matauraka Oha Oha at Te Whare Wananga o Otaku. How's it going, Trent? I'm well, thanks, Zach. Doing well, better than, better than last week, I hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so there's an obvious externality of natural disasters, uh, especially things like flooding and landslides, which have been happening recently in Aotearoa and overseas. Uh, the effects to supply chains. Is this of a considerable? Is this of a consider, considerable impact to the global economy? Yeah, boy, supply chains have been in the news lately since the pandemic, right? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's sort of the whole world supply chain uh, broke down on so many dimensions. Um, it's actually a consequence of of the globalization we've seen after the in the last 40 years you know sort of we've let we've let our many of our industries become more and more global and and um maybe without um policing monopoly monopoly power too much and what's that what that's done and what became so apparent with the pandemic is that it made made our supply chains even though they're hyper efficient they're in some way in many ways uh they're now very fragile and so we saw that we saw that with pandemic, and and you're right. Like every time there's a natural disaster, you see the same thing that um, because we have these fragile supply chains, it's not that hard to break them. And you know, a, a flood or hurricane in the wrong place can um, can have big repercussions around the world. Damage. Yeah. So looking more locally at the effects of natural disasters, they tend to have actually a net benefit for GDP, which seems somewhat counterintuitive. How does this work, and is it a problem that we get that effect? Yeah, that's funny. So GDP just measures economic activity, right? So when, they, when the Exxon, Exxon Valdez you know, crashed and spilled all that oil in, in Alaska many years ago, um, the fact of the matter was that even though that was obviously a terrible thing and it killed all these all this natural you know wilderness off and um, obviously a negative thing that happened, but like just based on GDP, you, you actually saw it, it was actually a big bump to GDP GDP because the, all the cleanup had to go and happen. Uh, last year, research was released by the World Meteorological Organization suggesting that the number of weather-related disasters had increased five-fold over the past 50 years. Uh, how is this being taken into account when it comes to ensuring those who are impacted by, by natural disasters? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. The, the, um, so I actually did a research, as a graduate student in the 1990s, I actually did a research project on, I was working with a research group that was sort of doing cost-benefit analysis on climate change. And in particular, you know, the climate forecasters were saying, well, listen, we're going to have, uh, you know, m more hurricanes in the future thanks to climate change. And that could be a big part of why we're, we're seeing this bump in, in disasters this year in particular. Um, but our, our sort of economists like to come up with clever ways of, of measuring things, right? And one of the things that's difficult to measure about sort of the costs and benefits of climate change, or in particular the costs of of climate change is that so much of it's out in the future, 
right? So normally economists will look for a clever, you know, market that somehow reflects, you know, the housing markets or something that that reflects that sort of captures some of these larger risks. And so our idea in my research group was to say was to look at insurance prices, right? And so if if uh, you know natural disaster, if hurricanes are more likely. Uh, to hit, you know, the East Coast of the U.S., then we should see that reflected in insurance prices. And this has actually been in the news. Um, and so we started to investigate it. Um, but the way insurance works in the U.S., uh, where sort of insurance isn't really backed by government at all, um, is that if you're an insurer that's, you know, offering, you know, hurricane insurance to people who own houses on a, stre- on a certain stretch of coast, um it could be really hard for you to cover that because because the risk is pooled. It's, it should be pooled, but it's sort of the hurricane hits the hits the region all at once, and it could bankrupt the insurance companies. So the way they deal with that in the U.S. and in many countries uh, is to is th- th- they have what they call a reinsurance market. So are they there are these reinsurers that are these like giant pools of global capital uh, that will basically offer sell insurance to the insurance companies. So if you're an insurance company and you think you have too much exposure in Florida, say, to hurricane damages, you could mitigate your risk by buying insurance from a reinsurer. Um, and it's kind of funny that, uh, that I kind of hinted that my project didn't get very, that this project didn't get very far. And the reason is that we started looking into it and we realized that, and partly because it had been in the news, like the reinsurers were actually making noise about this. They're saying... Well, listen, you know, we're going to have to raise our prices for reinsurance because of climate change. And and they were actually sort of getting together and having meetings about this and so forth. <laughs> we sort of we realized what this actually looked like to us was was collusion in pricing. Right. Like there are only like six at the time. There are only like something like six reinsurer big reinsurers in the entire planet. Right. And so the six of them were all getting together and saying, oh, let's raise our prices. Right. And this is, you know, this sounds a lot like Adam Smith's prediction from, you know, from the from the 18th century about uh, about people. It is this great quote in the in the in his Wealth of Nations books about uh, um, people of the same trade seldom get together, uh, even for merriment, before you know the conversation turns to a conspiracy against the public. <laughs> he had such a way with words. <laughs> Um, and so that was sort of the end of our project. We said, well, this, this actually isn't capturing the thing we wanted, which is sort of a market estimate of, of what the future damages to, to hurricanes are. So we sort of uh, went another way with that one. So is this sort of staggered collusion still happening today? Uh, another great question. So, so um, at the time... So this was in the 90s when I was working on this project, and it was Hurricane Andrew was the big disaster everyone was talking about. It had hit Florida, and it had uh, – at the time, it was the biggest hurricane – the largest amount of hurricane damages ever, right? So since then, of course, it's been eclipsed many times. But um, And at the time, um, just among economists, it was sort of thought that price-fixing conspiracies were pretty rare. Um, and we, we didn't actually know because – conspiracies are secret right like it's a really hard thing to do research on um but you know we sort of you could sort of explain the economic economic logic of why a conspiracy should be really hard to to put in place right because you know you might get caught there's you know then there's criminal penalties and um even if you have a conspiracy of several firms 
um, there's always a big incentive for one of them to defect, right? Because you could sort of capture the market if you if you lowered your prices and, and uh, you know walked out on the agreement. Um, but but at the same time that I was doing this project in the 90s, um, it turns out we found out later that the FBI was investigating a real life price fixing conspiracy among uh, producers of lysine, right? So it's an amino acid that's um, produced at such a scale that you, that for you know feeding cattle and so forth, that uh, there there were only something like six global producers of lysine at the time as well. And it turned out that um, it's a crazy story. So um, an informant from ADM, one of these, uh, the, the big producer of, the biggest producer of lysine, I think, um, one of the executives just rang up the FBI one day and said, listen, we're fixing prices. Why? Uh, you, well, it's it's kind of controversial, actually, why he did it. Um, it. It turns out he was a little bit nuts, I guess. Right. And uh, oh. it was a really freak thing that, yeah, that this guy came to the FBI being a high-paid high executive at ADM. Yeah. Um, and so we actually, this guy actually agreed to wear wire. Wow. And, like, so he would actually, like, Organize these price fixing meetings in Honolulu with these, you know, with these other six lysine producers, and and he, you know, let the FBI in on it. And he wore he wore a wire for like two years in all his meetings. This just incredibly productive informant for the FBI, um, and they were able to get like video. I use these in my economics lectures sometimes. They actually got video of these price fixing uh, meetings of these guys, you know, like drawing the little supply and demand graphs and uh, you know, sort of explaining how they were going to do this thing. Um, so anyway, and so this came out in the nineties. Um, there, there have been a couple really good books written about it. Actually, one's called The Informant, and one's called Rats in the Grain. Um, and uh, and there's also a, there's a terrible I almost I, I really don't I almost don't want to tell you this there's a terrible Matt Damon movie about it so it's a, it's called The Informant right um, and I don't encourage you to watch it it's sort of this goofy stupid thing and the it, it really if you know the whole story you sort of you come away with it away from it just being outraged because the informant actually went to jail for longer than any of any of the executives that were doing the prize fixing. Wow. Um, yeah, no, no, it's really outrageous. Uh, and like I said, they made the movie really goofy, so you don't walk away from it being outraged. But if you, like I say, if you know the whole story, um, the sort of the companies that made hundreds of millions of dollars with their prize fixing, um, you know, they paid fines, but the fines weren't as much as the profits they had made. It was pretty, pretty outrageous what happened. And the poor informant... Um, yeah, it's a bit controversial as to why he did what he did, but um, in the end, it turned out he uh, told one too many lies to the FBI, and they uh, and they decided to actually use his ev his own evidence against him, his own recordings against him, and he was prosecuted for price fixing. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Uh, lysine price fixing aside, <laughs> uh, how are the damages from a natural disaster uh, calculated? You know, presumably there's a lot of damage and loss that you can't know about because the sheer you know scale of some natural disasters they're just enormous. Yeah, well, like I said, it can be difficult, and that's why we were looking at things like in, in my group we were looking at things like the insurance market to to look for some market signal of of, uh, and you can look at you know. Past climate events, past past big weather, big natural disasters, and uh, 
estimate what they cost based on, you know, the damages that had to be repaired and so forth and the economic uh, activity that was uh, that was put on hold while uh, while, while uh, recovery was happening. Um, so it can be done, right? So economists can get out their pencils and and, and work out those numbers. Um, I suppose a more uh, it's it's relevant for New Zealand, I guess, to talk about how we deal with yeah, deal yeah. with this, right? Yeah, and no, I imagine you guys are going to ask that. <laughs> so, um, like I said, in the U.S., they rely on this reinsurance market to help them spread the like they spread the risk around the world. Um, so in New Zealand, we have the EQC, which is which is serves the same role as as reinsurance, but instead mm-hmm. of instead of uh, you know draining the economy with <laughs> annual payments going off to this. Uh, this evil reinsurance, global reinsurance industry—it's—it's uh, it's all done in house, which is—which is a pretty efficient, efficient way to do it, I think. Now, FEMA is kind of the arm of the government in the U.S. that deals with you know uh, cleaning up and sorting people out after a natural disaster has hit um, wherever they live. Is there a similar equivalent in New Zealand, or is it just like the EQC again? Well, it is the EQC, and. Okay. It, and uh, FEMA is actually pretty feeble compared to the EQC. Yeah. EQC is actually it's it sort of makes you whole if you're given that you as long as you had house insurance beforehand, um, it's it's a it's a pretty good system for uh, supporting the people who are actually hit. Which is uh, the the coverage is not nearly the FEMA coverage isn't nearly as good in mm. uh, in the U.S. That was a Radio 191 event podcast. You can find more of them at r1.co.nz forward slash podcast.